welcome to episode 217 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Perrin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Attack Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore of Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other assignments. How are you this morning, Bill? Hey, I'm doing great, Seth. And as we open up today, I want to bring everybody's attention to the fact that the USS Indianapolis Cruiser Legacy Organization has just published a new book. Now, I know listeners and viewers of our podcast, uh, there is no shortage of books recommended by them in our comments and to them by others. But this is a brand new book. It focuses on the African-American crew on the World War II cruiser USS Indianapolis. The title of the book is Heroes in the Shadows, and the subtitle is The Untold Story of the African-American Sailors Aboard USS Indianapolis. Now, there were 28 African-American sailors on the cruiser when it was sunk. Not one survived. Let me say that again. Not one survived. In fact, I had been associated with the cruiser survivors for almost a decade before I learned that, you know, that that not any of them survived because nobody, no relatives of the of the African Americans were coming to the reunions and so on. And in fact, it, it, everybody knows the story of Dory Miller. Dory Miller was a crew member on the Indianapolis. He didn't die on the Indianapolis. Sadly, he died on another ship. But the point I'm making is this is an, a very underreported story. The African American experience in World War II. This is a really important book, and I encourage everybody to read it. We're going to include the link to where you can buy it in the notes for this episode, but I want to encourage everybody to pick up a copy. I think you'll find it very fascinating. Yep, outstanding. And books are always a good thing, and new books uh, exploring uh, familiar topics are, are always fascinating. So this is definitely one to be acquired if you have not done so just yet. Um, before we get started, as I've been doing here the last few episodes, I do want to make the plea to like and subscribe our, to our YouTube channel. Uh, don't just watch the videos, but like them and subscribe to our channel as it helps other people find our show and gets our information out to the masses. So we would greatly appreciate that. Um, so we're going to get to our episode today right now. So as we have seen in the last several episodes, as a campaign ashore on New Georgia has dragged on and on and on, uh, the Allies slugging it out and trudging up New Georgia, the waters offshore were just as busy. Kula Gulf, Kolomangara, and Vela Gulf were all naval duels that occurred when Japanese efforts to reinforce their positions on and around New Georgia ran slap into American naval forces. The mishaps at Kula Gulf and Kolomangara forced the U.S. Navy to utilize their ever-growing fleet of destroyers because of the lack of cruisers available and the close confines of the waters. As we enter October 1943, the naval situation is relatively unchanged since Vela Gulf. Uh, American destroyers prowl the waters in the Solomons, making almost nightly runs up through the slot to intercept incoming Japanese troop convoys. Sometimes the DDs are successful. Other times they come up empty-handed. Allied troops, specifically soldiers of the Army's 35th Regimental Combat Team, later relieved by New Zealanders of the 3rd Division, slugged it out against Japanese entrenched on the jungle island of Vela La Vela following the decision to bypass the Japanese stronghold of Kolomangara. 
From August 15th through October 6th, Allied troops numbering some 9,000 plus fought a frustrating fight against a vastly inferior enemy numbering just over 1,000. The Japanese, for their part, elected to withdraw their men on the island and place them at the site of the next major land struggle, that, of course, being Bougainville. While the land campaign on Vela La Vela was a slow trudge, the waters offshore, just like at New Georgia in the past and Bougainville in the future, were very, very active. Um, there's a couple, there's a lot of little destroyer, and I say little, but they're, they're little compared to, you know, Savo Island. But I mean, there's a lot of destroyer actions in and around the waters of the Solomons, and we've covered a great many of them so far, but there's still two that are kind of hanging out in the wind that as we're starting to progress up through and we're getting closer to Bougainville and and then, of course, later, you know, Tarawa and places like that, we kind of want to wrap these guys up. Um, so, Bill, the Allies landed troops at Vela La Vela following the decision to bypass Colombangara. And this is part of that island hopping campaign that we've talked about that, you know, Nimitz uh, followed in the Central Pacific Drive and MacArthur also followed, obviously, here in the Southwest Pacific. So, you know... With New Georgia wrapping up, Munda Field and Allied Hands, the decision to bypass Colombangara was wise because we've talked about this in several episodes. The Japanese were piling people here, weren't they? They sure were. It was some estimates said that there were between thirteen and twenty thousand men ashore on Colombangara, and, and they were all itching to fight. As you said, Seth, earlier, you know there was nine thousand Americans fighting, just over a thousand Japanese. On Vela La Vela, if that's you know how the tenacity of the Japanese with a thousand people, imagine what the fight was going to be like with twenty thousand ashore on Colombagar. So the island hopping campaign here, in particular, made sense. It's surprising to me that MacArthur you know agreed to it rather than trying to engage in a slugfest here. Now he did agree to it in conference with Halsey. And it might have been that Halsey was trying to pitch reality to him. We didn't have the amphibious forces. We didn't have the tr ground troops. We didn't have anywhere near enough to, to battle a 20,000-man force here. So there was really no decision to be made in, right. in skipping over um, Kolomangara, I think, Seth. Is that right? No, I completely agree. I, and you know, when you when you when your intel is estimating between thirteen and twenty thousand people, it's very clear that they don't know exactly how many people are there. So there could be thirty thousand people there for all they know. You know, and there's a lot of cats that are potentially on Kolomangara. And as we've seen in past episodes, Japanese are funneling people in there all the time because they assume that to be the next step. And, you know, this is the whole this is the fundamental basis for the island hopping campaign It's like, oh, we know there's a bunch of people there. At least we think there's a bunch of people there. Well, let's just jump over this and let them wither on the vine. That is exactly what they're doing here. And to Max credit, mm -hmm. whether it was him or Halsey who you know pushed the envelope, regardless of this, it's MacArthur's decision here at this point. And Max like, eh, eh, we're not going to do this. Let's just jump over. It. And he, he does make a good decision there because. <laughs> You know, to sacrifice American lives for something, if you pull it up on the map there, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's not necessarily a vital island to have, especially when you look at where we're going here. Now, if we do an overview of the of the general area again, here's my fancy new mouse. mouse. Guadalcanal's down here, and we've already talked at length about Savo, Tulagi, and all of the different campaigns that have gone in here, Cape Esperance. And of course, we've got 
Um, New Georgia here, we talked at length about Rendova Island here, where we did build a pretty good base. We're going to talk about PP, um, PT boats operating out of Rendova a little later in this episode. But New Georgia is here. And we talked about the fact that the Rendova to New Georgia and, and Buna, these are areas that are basically within artillery range of each other. These are very small distances here between these areas. Now, Kola Magara is, is this round island here. We talked last time about or earlier about a lot of activity that went in this channel here where, you know, there's a lot of activity here. And we had PBYs rescuing troops in contact, wounded troops in contact here uh, because they were the only things that could get inside these reefs that are all over the place here uh, across from Kolomagar. So a lot of Japanese forces here. And of course, Vela Lavella, the subject of today's concept uh, conversation is here. So 1,000 Japanese against 9,000 Americans were struggling to, to do it. And the Japanese decide they're going to exfil their 1,000 troops here off of Vela Lavella to reinforce Bougainville. And, and we do have an episode coming up to talk about Empress Augusta Bay and Bougainville that we recorded with Drakenfell. So all the Drak fans, you're going to be really happy with that. So this is the area that we're talking about today. And up further north, if I could set the stage, we've got Cape St. George. And of course, further north from that is Rabal and it's northwest. And so this is a very, very active, there's Rabal right here, very active area. And, and that's what we want to make sure everybody understands the geometry and geography of all the activities that's going to take place. So once we made the decision to bypass Kola Mangara, you know, Vela Lavella was the next place, as we talked about in the intro. Um, the Japanese were fully aware that the defense of the island for Vela, of Vela Lavella was relatively hopeless. There was no real need for the Japanese to maintain a position on that island because they knew that the next, or at least they assumed that the next major landing spot for the Allies going up the Solomon's chain was going to be Bougainville. It was, you know, it's a large, large island. So they knew that, you know what, we don't need this place. We're going to need every man we can get to hold Bougainville. So let's get the people out of there and get them ashore where we need them. Evacuation of their forces or whatever they could get out in reality was an operation that the Japanese would definitely undertake. Now they've proven that they would do this before on Guadalcanal. Granted, admittedly, they waited too damn long. But regardless of this, they did evacuate as many people as they could off of Guadalcanal back in January, February 43. They're going to try and do the exact same thing here. But as opposed to Guadalcanal, where there are tens of thousands of people, there's only a few hundred here on Vela La Vela that they want to get out. Um, it, the Allies had pushed the Japanese, and we'll talk about the exact number here in just a minute. The Allies had pushed the Japanese up Vela Lavella into this little pocket, um, some 600 or so in number to the northwest corner of the island near Marquana or Marquana Bay, um, where the Kiwis, the 14th Brigade, had them surrounded. So the Japanese are they're in a pocket. They're not getting out of there. They're going to die. The, the, the New Zealanders are going to wipe them out in due time if the Japanese don't get them out of there. Um, as, as has been said, the Japanese needed and wanted to get those people out of there to get them to Bougainville to reinforce their positions there. Uh, they hatched a plan to get these people out 
right under the Allied noses. They had performed these types of operations all through the Solomons, either putting people in or getting people out right under our noses numerous times and had been successful successful more often than not. So their plan was pretty simple for this. I mean, it's, it's, they didn't put a whole lot of thought into it because they really didn't need to. Um, under the cover of darkness, some 20 vessels of varying kinds, and it, it, they're using literally anything that can float and move, uh, subchasers, barges, landing craft, destroyers, you name it. Essentially, whatever the Japanese could cobble together would go to Vela La Vela with an escort of nine destroyers and get their men off of the island. Uh, the Japanese evac force consisted of the screening destroyers Akigumo, Isokaze, Kazagumo, Yugumo, Shigure, and Samadare. So there's a lot of little fast EDs here, as well as the evacuation destroyers, um, Fumizuki, Matsukaze, and Yunage, Yunagi, plus four subchasers and a further eight-odd craft of varying kinds. All of these craft are going to be under the command of Admiral Matsuji Ijuin. Uh, he is a guy that we've never talked about before. And as you'll see, he's really only talked about here. Um, now, much like every other thing, other every other naval event that occurs here in the Solomon Islands, Bill, they're, they're shoving off for a ball because that's the main base. What are the Japanese doing? How do we how do they get down there? How do we find them out? What's going on here? The Japanese leave for ball you know, on schedule pretty much, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And by the way, folks, you know, if you're looking for this Marcana Bay on a modern map like Google Maps, you're not going to find it. I had to go back to World War II map to figure out where Marcana Bay is. And on Villa La Villa Island, it's up here, as you would expect, in this area near what's now called Ingila. I think a lot of the places in the Solomons have reverted to their native names uh, away from the names that the occupants the you know empire imperialists you might call them <laughs> gave them colonials. during occupation colonials yeah. thank you and so um so it's up here so yeah the japanese are coming down with their escorts on the sixth ignoring basically any of the allied aerial recon which of course is since we've We've manned or we've, we've built out the, the base on, um, you know, New Georgia here. Remember Munda and the big base we started occupying? Well within air cover for Munda, for Henderson Field, and other places around here. In fact, I think the Black Sheep Squadron is already in Munda at this point flying out of there. Yeah. So they're ignoring all of that air cover. They're just basically sailing trying to get do it under the cover of darkness down the slot right down here actually coming north of, of bougainville and then entering the slot here to come down uh, and pick up their troops right in this area of vela la vela mm -hmm. on the 6th he entered the slot about 1653 now, now he had been spotted he being ijuan he had been mm -hmm. spotted by aerial recon Several times, actually. So we knew he was coming. He didn't care. He was under orders to get over there, get those people off that island, and get them the hell out of there as fast as he could, regardless of what may or may not happen. Once he entered the slot, uh, Ijuin detaches three destroyers, three destroyer escorts, to accompany Shigure and Samadare towards Marcana Bay. This is the bay that no longer exists, well, at least under that name that, that Bill was talking about just a minute ago. 
Um, the Japanese force, as I said, had been detected all day, really, by aerial recon. So it was a known thing that the Japanese were entering the area. The area. Uh, to counter the threat, two groups of American destroyers, three in each group, were sent to stop the evacuation and destroy the Japanese ships in the slot. Um, another guy we have not talked about before, Admiral Theodore Wilkinson, he's commanding the Allied amphibious forces in this region. Um, he issues the command, issuing it to the six destroyers in his force. However, three of them were already on convoy duty. They were not, they were further south than the initial three. And we'll get to the ship's names here in just a minute. So it, it was initially a problem of sending six destroyers into the area to intercept the incoming Japanese because it was a known thing that three of them would probably get there significantly earlier than the other three. So for a chance or for a while, there is a very strong chance that there's only going to be three American destroyers out there and not six. But we'll get to mm -hmm. that in a second. Um, the uh, uh, three destroyers on convoy do. Oh, good, good. Yes. Sorry to interrupt, uh, Seth, but before no, no, we move sorry. on, I found this map on a New Zealand website. Again, it wasn't easy to find. Over here, you could see how, the, in particular, the New Zealand uh, troops were, you know, were moving from point to point on Vela La Vela. You couldn't bushwhack through this dense jungle, but they mm -hmm. basically hopped on barges and landing craft around the island to try to envelop the Japanese troops. Troops that were up here, and you can see Marcana Bay. And so this is the way they were trying to envelop the Japanese troops as the Japanese were trying to exfil um, using these this consortium of whatever ships they had at hand. Almost, you know, we call them uh, troops of, of convenience, ships of convenience at this point. Mm -hmm. But that's just, I thought I'd share that with the viewers. Go ahead. That's a lot. Well, that's 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 important because, you know, people are going to wonder why, you know, 9000 guys couldn't knock out a thousand guys in, in a span mm -hmm. of two months. Look at that island. Look at the topography on that island. That is not an easy hump, you know, getting through that area. That is that is not an easy walk right. at, at all. And, and the whole point that they're doing successful or successive amphibious landings tells you all you need to know about the topography of that island and how they had to actually capture it and why it took so damn long to do it. Um, mm -hmm. The three destroyers that were on convoy duty are under the command of a guy named Captain Harold Larson. Uh, they are Ralph Talbot, Taylor, and Lavalette. Um, these three destroyers are part of Desron uh, 21, which was a well-known destroyer squadron uh, in the Solomons area, and really for the whole war, but especially the Solomons area. Um, Ralph Talbot, Taylor, and Lavalette broke from their convoy escort duty and made speed towards the air at the best speed possible, expecting to arrive around 2330. The other three American destroyers that are closer to the area and, and, and receive direct orders to proceed to the area are under the command of a guy named Captain Frank Walker, uh, and they consisted of the USS O'Bannon, the Chevalier, and the Selfridge. These are all Fletcher-class destroyers. O'Bannon, of course, is one of the more famous destroyers of World War II. Admiral Wilkinson, who was uh, fully aware of Ijuin's strength of nine destroyers, because they had been, as I said, spotted by aerial recon numerous times during the day. So it was, you know, if you go back to some of the other episodes, Bill, um, and even some of the things we're going to cover later on today, uh, 
you know, sometimes the aerial recon is like way off, you know, oh, there's a battleship here recruiting when there was nothing in the area. This time it's dead on. So that he was well aware that there were nine Japanese destroyers heading to this area where he's sending six, potentially that only three will arrive in time. And he gives Walker the option. He says, look, if you want to wait, it might be wise to wait for the other three. So at least you have six because there are nine Japanese destroyers coming to this party. So you might want to hang out and wait a minute and get your other three in there and then go in there as a, as a squadron of six. He doesn't, Walker does not wait at all though, does he? He does not. And you know, you got to wonder what goes through his mind at this point, because three against nine is just overwhelming. Now he hopes he's going to have the element of surprise. He thinks he knows where the enemy is. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, we have severely, severely, wrong word. We have wonderfully, incredibly refined the engagement tactics we use for destroyers. So if he gets the element of surprise and, and a, a, you know, and gets a jump on him, he can disable enough of these ships that by the time the second group of three destroyers arrive, we can do some real damage. At least that's what he's thinking. And and remember Nimitz's dictum that we've talked about dozens of times so far in our series, which is calculated risk. I wonder if that was going through his mind as he's going through this, because it's certainly risk. The question is, calculated risk, can you do enough, inflict enough damage on the enemy that it's worth taking the chance? Um I I can't imagine that, that Nimitz would have agreed <laughs> with engaging because again he, he wasn't trying to rescue Amer- uh, New Zealand right. troops in contact at this point. He's really just trying to prevent the evacuation of Japanese ground forces on Vela Vela. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't like trying to get in there and duke it out to resupply starving Marines on Guadalcanal. Um, I, I almost feel again. It's 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 probably unf- it's not probably it is unfair for me to judge somebody like this. It almost feels to me like this is a bit of glory seeking. If he succeeds, he's going to be a legend. Right. If he fails, nobody could blame him because it was nine against three. And right. so um, let's see how it turns out, Seth. <laughs> So you mentioned he thought he had the element of surprise. However, mm. or at least re- re- let me rephrase it. He assumed that he would have the element of surprise. Right. However, we have aerial snoopers out looking for the Japanese, of course, which we find them numerous times. We said this. The Japanese also have aerial snoopers out, too, looking for our people. Mm. And they do indeed find Walker's um, three ships. And Walker keeps darting in and out of rain squalls. And he's aware, too. Like, he knows the Japanese are there. They see him. But they're staying out of range, out of anti-aircraft range. He can't get to the Japanese to shoot them down. But these guys keep hanging with him. Every time he pops out of that rain squall or a rain squall, bam, the Japanese are right there. So, I mean, they're following him the whole way there. As it gets dark, he thinks he may be able to lose the Japanese aerial snooper. But uh-uh. Japanese aerial snooper keeps dropping flares. They drop float mm-hmm. lights. So, I mean, it's abundantly clear. That's number one. It's abundantly clear that the Japanese have found Walker and they are tracking him. So more than likely, 
Ijuin is receiving orders that are receiving uh, warnings that that there is an American force inbound. Right. Yeah. So, and of course, Ijuin has to assume that he doesn't know the precise, um, you know, number of ships that are inbound. That you know, the airplanes have seen some, but there's probably more out there. And so he's got to be a little bit cautious in in that regard. But you know he's he's got a mission and he's going to execute the mission. So twenty two thirty, the Walker and his three ships were a scant ten miles from Arcana Bay, which we already talked about. When a minute later, the TBS opened up and stated that Selfridge had spotted two targets on radar ten miles west. The two targets had broken into two separate groups. Heading westward at a speed of speed of 30 knots. So these people are going someplace fast. They're transiting. They're not necessarily preparing to engage. Now Walker, to his credit, charged towards the Japanese force, despite being outnumbered more than two to one. It was almost three to one at this point. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of the, the the scene as the engagement begins, Seth. Mm-hmm. So he knows Walker knows that he's got Larson's people behind him. And as us, as we said earlier, now he was warned, hey, you might want to wait. His idea, and it's not a bad plan, frankly, his his idea was that he would attack and hopefully draw the Japanese, because he knows he's outnumbered, hopefully draw the Japanese to chase him, and where he would basically just run him right into Larson's, you know, open arms, and then Larson's mm-hmm. people would attack him too. It's not necessarily a bad plan, but of course there's a lot of a lot of things that hinge on that, not the least of which is that the Japanese are going to do what you want them to do, which, as we've seen <laughs> numerous times, that usually does not happen like that. that no they don't plan do survive. what you want them to do. Yeah, no plan survives contact with the enemy. So he is, is here, the, essentially, the canary in the coal mine. And you're not going to, who, how many people want to be that? Right, exactly. So the Japanese snoopers. Snooper single Uno. <laughs> we talked about how accurate the Ameri- the American aerial or the Allied aerial recon was for this particular episode. The Japanese couldn't be farther from that if they tried. Um, the three ships in Walker's force were initially reported to be a cruiser and four destroyers. So they added <laughs> a couple of ships to that, including one class that wasn't even there. Um this report to Ijuin caused one group of destroyers, the destroyer transports, numbering three vessels, to swing around and head for home. So once mm-hmm. Ijuin, who had, by the way, had been um, – he had a reputation within the Imperial Navy of being – I don't want to say timid, but hesitant to engage. Yeah. So when yeah, he they, hears that – go ahead. No, I was going to say is these three that headed home weren't basically were, – were fighting DDs. The, like the right. dis- destroyers that were on the American side, they were what we would have called APDs, which is destroyer transports. They were there to pick up the um, ground troops. And and if they run at the bottom of the ocean, obviously they couldn't pick up the ground troops. And if that was their mission, then surviving, you know, was an important aspect of that mission. So they could rescue the uh, soldiers who were on Bella Lavella. So I don't fault them to for to swing around. They head for home. Remember, home here is Rabal. It's only a little bit further away. So not a big deal. But but they figured, okay, we'll we'll let the warships, I'll call it that, because that, you know, the APDs, DDs probably didn't consider themselves fighting ships at that point. 
we'll let them duke it out. Then we'll come in and pick up the troops. So that, that was kind of, I think, the way the plan was evolving. Again, no plan survives contact with the enemy on either side. So it didn't, it's not going the way the Americans think it's going to go at this point, And it's not going the way the Japanese think it's going to go either. No, but it does pare the odds down significantly from, mm -hmm. not, you know, nine against three. It's now six against three. So it is two to one right. now here at this point. So mm -hmm. the Japanese remaining six Japanese vessels now completely aware of the presence of American ships due to the snooper and the visual sighting. They actually did visually sight them at 2230, some 19,000 mm -hmm. yards away. So the Japanese know uh, we got company. There's there's Americans in the area and let's get ready to rock and roll back aboard the American destroyers. Um, Selfridge, which was in the van, was tracking the target as they drew closer and closer. Radar men watched as Ijuin's column veered sharply to the left, apparently to attack, yet he did not. He hesitated. He did not attack. Ijuin was mm -hmm. unsure of the identity of the ships. And this this is one of the this is not the first time, but it's it's one of few times when we mentioned you know, we talk about Japanese visually sighting uh allied ships, or in this case American ships, and immediately recognizing them. As such, this is one of those times, and you've talked about this, Bill, looking out on a black night, you don't necessarily see a ship, you see a blob. And I'm right. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say that this is what the Japanese are seeing because it's 19,000 yards away. I don't care how good your optics are, you're not gonna be able to distinguish, you know, a lot from 19,000 yards away on a dark night, right? No, uh, exactly. You know, when I'm looking, when I was looking out through the periscope um on a dark night. You know, we had some image intensification, so we had a little bit of help that they didn't have back in World War II. But I could, my eyes can visualize that blob. And if you stare it hard enough, you can, you can make that target look like almost anything you want it to look like. It's really <laughs> easy to delude yourself as, as to what it is. And so I think that's what happened here with some of these Japanese observers is they, they're staring at these targets trying to figure out what it is and hmm it sure kind of has the form of one of our ships if that's what you want to see you're going to see it which is going to enough to create a little bit of delay and hesitation and waste this effort you know opportunity in this case to cross the T of the Americans and conduct an attack that would have been more effective and yet what happens next Seth mm, yeah well walker orders a torpedo attack so so To your point, Bill, he he being Ijuin did have the advantage, even though we were tracking him on radar, he had position advantage and he neglected to take that advantage, shall we say, due to what you were talking mm -hmm. about. Couldn't properly identify the vessels. Regardless of this, the Americans know that these ships are Japanese. So Walker orders a torpedo attack, which launched 14 torpedoes at the Japanese, then swung his ships around and opened fire with his main batteries. This is the same exact tactic, or very, very similar tactic, I should say, that was used at Vela Gulf with great success by Fred Mooseberger. Um, once the gunfire erupted, the Japanese destroyer Yagumo turned in and charged the American columns. And now the Americans unleash their gunfire. The Japanese know, okay, those are not Japanese ships out there. Those are most certainly American ships. Yugumo does not waste any time. She charges in the American column from 3,300 yards away. As she does so, she fires eight long lance torpedoes and opens fire on the Americans. As she charges, she 
as we've seen numerous times, the first go, generally the first ship to open fire becomes a beacon for every other ship in that force, radar or not. And that is exactly what happens here to Yagumo. She is smothered by five-inch gunfire. She is ablaze from stem to stern, and she sucks up at least one American torpedo. As we said earlier in a, in a Vela Golf episode, our torpedoes are actually starting to work. Um, this torpedo just disembowels her and leaves her you know, awash with flame and sinking rapidly. Um, the remaining five Japanese destroyers turn away. Uh, apparently now feeling that escape was their better option. As they do so, though, they uh, well they come under fire from Selfridge that fires on uh, Shiguri and Samadare. Um, Selfridge exposes her broadside to unleash every five-inch gun on uh, on her to these Japanese. Um, Chevalier, which is so it's Selfridge, Chevalier, and O'Bannon um, in the column. Uh, Chevalier is directly behind Selfridge. Uh, she goes and turns to do the exact same thing. She turns to unleash her main battery, all turrets on her on her uh, deck at the Japanese. And when she does, what happens, Bill? Yeah, you know the great thing about turning broadside is you uncover both all of your guns and you can engage with all of your guns. The downside of turning broadside is you make yourself a broader target for those incoming torpedoes, right? And so what happens? Well, one of Yaguma's torpedoes hits her near her Ford magazine. And now, just like she, as if she were a cruiser, her bow is blown off um, yeah. as far aft as the bridge, actually, right? So Chevalier yeah. was running at flank speed when this happens. And just like happened with the Indianapolis 1945, when you're running really fast and your bow's blown off, it pushes a lot of water into your ship, right? The engines are forcing that water into your ship. And and so, you know, the thing you got to do is all stop, all back emergency to try to stop that flood of water to the ship and, and try to try to take away, go backwards and hopefully pull some of that suction will pour some of that water out. It doesn't actually work, but that was the thought. No, Bannon bringing up the rear smacks right into Chevalier, right into her because Chevalier is trying to take way off very fast to keep that water from fresh from from rushing into the missing bow and obana's got doesn't have enough clearance to do the same thing doesn't anticipate react fast enough doesn't take her speed off fast enough so now she collides with chevalier as well and and because of that obana is now out of the fight so mm -hmm. it's not going good so it was we kind of had the advantage at this point and very quickly as soon as that long lance hits chevalier things reverse and turn bad immediately seth yeah yeah i mean within within minutes you know chevalier is done for o'bannon plows into her she's done for and o'bannon it's not to say that it was poor ship handling uh on the o'bannon's part not at all to your point i mean they were they were relatively close they're in battle column and all these things happen at once you know so it's mm -hmm. and and you know, o'bannon does try to steer away but she's making too much headway and then all of a sudden like you said you know Chevalier just boom stops, pow. You know, it's kind of like a like a collision at a stop sign kind of a thing. Um, typical Japanese tactic: once they come under fire, they peel away and they do launch torpedoes. And this is what, of course, kills Chevalier. Selfridge also takes a torpedo here. Um, it does not, <clears throat> excuse me, it does not sink her, but it does 
cause significant damage and causes her to retire as well. So now all three American destroyers that had launched this attack, Selfridge, O'Bannon, and Chevalier, uh, Chevalier's sinking, Selfridge took a torpedo, and O'Bannon ran into Chevalier. So it's all three of them are severe. Well, one of them sinking, and the other two are severely damaged. And mm-hmm. the the surprise attack or the attack that initially started off pretty good now just goes down the commode. I mean, there is there's nothing going on positive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Americans have the Japanese on the run, both the initial yeah. APD three destroyers and then the following destroyers, you know, when they when they're surprised by the early opening attack. And well, you you know, you, you never count out those long lens torpedoes. You just don't. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a game changer. Just one hit one torpedo against a destroyer. Heck, one torpedo against a cruiser is going to take it out of action if, if it doesn't sink it. One against a destroyer, high probability it's going to be sunk. And so um yeah, this is one of those things where they had to assume those long lances were in the water. Um, I don't know, you know, whether they got cocky or what, but you know, or they 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 felt momentum was on their side. But this kind of demonstrates how quickly that momentum can reverse. So Larson's force of three DDs finally arrive, but they're still too far away to get after the retreating Japanese. They they see the conflagration in the American ships in front of them. Uh, so they begin rescue operations while O'Bannon and Selfridge try to get out of there and get back to Tulagi where they can get some repairs done before you know they end up sinking as well. And they do make it back to Tulagi. They do, yeah. And 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 that that is an amazing um, piece of seamanship and damage control on Selfridge to take a Japanese long lance, which, as you pointed out, Bill, mm-hmm. we've seen one good torpedo hit. Uh, from a long lance on an American heavy cruiser can take it out. Uh, a Fletcher, you know, a, a Fletcher class DD takes a torpedo. I, I believe I could be wrong there, but I'm about 99% certain Selfridge was Fletcher. Uh, take regardless of this, it, it takes a torpedo and still it limps away, but it still survives. And that's a hell of a piece of damage control and seamanship by the sailors aboard Selfridge to save that ship and keep it from going under like her sister. You know, literally just minutes before with Chevalier. So what happens here, though, is is the Americans are rescuing other Americans or, you know, skedaddling, getting out of the area. Those APDs that initially turned around because they knew a battle was about to take place as Japanese, you know, destroyers that were there to pick up the um, Japanese soldiers. Now they say, holy cow. Maybe this is our chance. They get in there and they do evacuate the Japanese soldiers. So despite their best efforts, despite a whole bunch of initial damage on the Japanese column, the Japanese complete their mission and the Americans fail in theirs, which was to prevent the exfil of those Japanese soldiers. And, you know, the total of 67 Americans were killed, 54 on the Chevalier and 13 on Selfridge. A further 47 were wounded and 36 missing, you know, assumed uh, unrecoverable, bodies unrecoverable. So they're essentially KIA. The Japanese took about 140 men total. Now, it seems like small numbers in terms of the number of ships and men. Um, Yet the naval battle of Vela La Vela would go down in history. This is kind of remarkable. And I'm going to underscore this. 
Genesis because it's so incredible as the final Japanese surface naval victory of the war Mm -hmm. in 1943. Let me say that again. This is the final Japanese surface naval victory of the war. Absolutely remarkable. We got two years of war left. Yep. Yep. And when you think about that, you know, again, just what you said, it's a small battle in terms of the overall picture of the war. But this one last little tangle here is Mm -hmm. the final victory by the Imperial Navy against, you know, on on the surface for the remainder of the war. When you think about what had happened since December 7th, 1941. You know, and I'm not even talking about Pearl Harbor, but I'm just talking about from that time period till now, especially 41, 42, and parts of 40, early parts of 43, when the Japanese Navy was still, you know, a an extremely formidable force, you know, be it with aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers, whatever, doesn't matter. This is the final surface victory of the war. That'll tell you several things, not the least of which is how much at this point in 1943 the battle the war of attrition which is what it is had taken hold of the imperial navy yes they still had plenty of battleships and they still had carriers but they you know we've talked about why they couldn't uh, deploy them here in this locale but same thing with our forces but i mean this is the final victory of the imperial navy on the surface during the entire war that is that's astounding when you think about it it really is yeah. So that is um, setting the stage for jumping way forward <laughs> to we are. October we are. 6th, November 25th, 1943. Again, I, we failed to mention this at the beginning of the episode, but you know these sweep-up battles that we're going to talk about today, some of which have been requested by viewers and listeners in comments or emails to us, um, none of which were sufficient to fill an entire episode. So we kind of aggregated them into this one episode. And so we're going to jump now to um, October to November 43, skipping over Empress Augusta Bay. Now, I said it earlier, we've done an episode just on that with Drakenfell coming up. You'll see it. And if you haven't already seen it, I can't remember. I think it's already aired by the time this one did. So you are, you should know that you've know. already seen that. And then, I frankly um, don't know. I don't know where it is in yeah, my lineup. I think, I think that one airs before this one. So I think we're good. And, and if it doesn't, it. stay tuned. So <laughs> doesn't stay tuned. Exactly. Right. Um, but, you know, here we go. We're going to do some time traveling. Give a bit of background. At this point, November 25th to uh, yeah, around November 25th, the Americans have landed Marines from the 3rd Marine Division on Bougainville. Of course, that is here. Okay. On November 1st, and, and we're, and we're going to cover Bougainville as well, right? Now, believing that the American landings on Cape Torquino, which is right here on the western coast of Bougain, of Empress Augusta Bay. Now, believing that those American landings were a ruse, the Japanese withheld men from a counterattack and instead reinforced Buka up here because they believed that that was the real target. Okay. Now, actually, it's not very 
visible from this point of view, but Buka is actually an island. There's this little tiny channel that separates the island of Buka from the island of Bougainville. So the Japanese are massing their forces up here on Buka as we land on Cape Torokino. Okay. So with that geographic setting of the stage, oh, by the way, before I leave the map, Cape St. George is up here on the island of New Ireland. And again, to remind you, Rabal is over here on the island of New Britain. So setting that stage, I'll turn it back over to you, Seth. Yeah, you know, it's 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 important to note, too, that, that Buka was, the Japanese thought, even though they knew we were going to come to Bougainville eventually, they felt that Buka was was important to hold on to and that we were going to leapfrog and take Buka from the from the northern end up there because of its airfield. Um, everything in the Solomon Islands revolves around airfields, as we have seen. Um, the Japanese were aware of this, so they massed all those people there. And, and to what Bill was saying, we're going to do an episode or maybe two. It just depends how long it takes us to get through Bougainville because there's a lot of stuff that goes on there, a lot of combat on Bougainville. Um Determined to reinforce the garrison at Buka and the airfields, plural, airfields on it, uh, the Japanese decided to send 920 men aboard destroyers Amagiri, Yugiri, and Yuzuki to deposit those men ashore. Uh, those three Japanese destroyers were to be escorted by two Japanese destroyer, two destroyer escorts, uh, Onami and Makanami. And let me rephrase that. I said destroyer escorts. I'm not meaning the destroyer escort class like we had here or a classification of ship. These destroyers are escorting the other destroyers. Um, <clears throat> Allied aerial reconnaissance had recently flown over Rabal's Simpson Harbor and spotted several Japanese destroyers new to the arena uh, tied up in the harbor. And, of course, aerial recon, you know, you see a mass of ships down there, but after a while you start to recognize which ship, or at least you think, which ship is which ship and what class is different and everything. So they recognize it. Allied uh, aerial intelligence people are looking at these images and they realize, oh, there's, you know, there's new new ships here who have not arrived, uh, who just recently arrived to the party. So something more than likely is going to come up. Um, the Jap or the Allied aerial intelligence had deduced that the Japanese destroyers were there to do two things: one, either transport people or evacuate them. Of course, it's going to be transport people, and two, tangle with American destroyers that were now prowling the area. You know, we had cruisers, heavy cruisers, light cruisers, that as we've seen had been whittled down. A lot of the newer cruisers that you're going to see later on in the war for the Americans have not entered the party yet. So again, to reinforce this, this is a destroyer war down here right now. These are the main surface duels. The MPTs are the main surface duelers that we're utilizing at this time in the war. Um, of course, the Japanese were correct in assuming, or, or the Allies were correct in assuming that the Japanese were going to reinforce their positions. Um, it was confirmed when on November 24th, Japanese convoy containing the aforementioned destroyers that were spotted by aerial recon were spotted heading southwards. They're heading southwards towards the area. Um, Halsey receives this information, as he rightfully should, uh, regarding the Japanese troop convoy and decided that his destroyers in the area, specifically those of Desron 23, under the command of one Captain Arlie Burke specifically, would be able to make an intercept on the night of 25 November. Uh, Burke's ships contain, consisted of Charles Osborne, Claxton, and Dyson. The other two destroyers under the command of Bernard Austin were Converse and Spence. And I love this, Bill. And I'll let you read this one because this is just great. Halsey 
in his typical no-nonsense style, sends an order to Arlie Burke, and what does it read? Well, he, first he addresses him by his call sign, which was 30, 31 knot, right? And so he says, 31 knot Burke, get this. Put your squadron athwart the Buka Rabal evacuation line about 35 miles west of Buka. If no enemy contacts by early morning, come south to refuel, same place. If enemy contacted, you know what to do. Halsey. Bam, straight to the point. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, and we're going to think about there, why we call them 31 knot in a moment. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to say, I'm going to let you lead this off because I, 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 I'd rather you talk about these academy graduates for obvious reasons. <laughs> but we have not, we've mentioned Arlie Burke, but we've never really dug into him here and there. And he is, he's on par with the legends of the Pacific Theater, like, Halsey and Spruance. Obviously, he's not at that rank, but he his name comes up and he makes a huge career for himself. Who was Arlie Burke, Bill? Well, at this point of the war, he was a Desron commander at, at the rank of captain. You'll, many people and many of our listeners, viewers will re remember that during World War II, Commodore position was actually a rank, one star rank, as it is in the Royal Navy, Royal Australian Navy, Royal New Zealand Navy. Well, in the United States Navy, it was a one-star rank as well. So when you called somebody Commodore, it was usually because they had a one-star rank. In this case, he was a captain squadron commander. But but Arlie Burke was born in 1901 in Colorado. He was one of six children, like me. His primary education was in a one-room schoolhouse, unlike me, before he attended high school in Boulder, Colorado. He soon decided that farming, which is what his family historically had done, was not to his liking. So he sought and received an appointment to my alma mater. He entered the Naval Academy class of 1919, or in 1919, and graduated with the class of 1923, sitting at 71 in a class of 413. Now, 413 is a remarkably large class. The classes were growing in size from the time that Nimitz was, you know, growing in 1906 and to, to Present day, my, my class started out with about, I think, about 1,200, and we graduated with about 700. Um, mm -hmm. And so the graduation rate, I don't know how many of these guys started with, they graduated with 413. And Burke didn't do bad at 71 out of 413. No. Following his graduation, he spent five years aboard the battleship Arizona. Yes, that Arizona. And it's set upon learning of Arizona's destruction at Pearl Harbor, his desire to inflict equal or greater damage to the Japanese was unquenchable. And following service on the Arizona, he spent time on numerous auxiliary ships before being assigned shore duty, where in his mind, his limited spare time, where in his limited spare time, he acquired a master's degree in chemical engineering. Now, how you do that in your spare time, I have no idea. I got a master's degree in satellite engineering, but it required every ounce of my focus over the period of a period of two years to do that. And so this is an incredible achievement. And so in 3070s of ordered to his first destroyer, USS Craven, that's DD 382 as XO. A year later, he took command of Mugford 389. 
During this tour, Mugford excelled in gunnery and participated in the development of high-speed night gunnery and torpedo attack tactics. After a little more than a year in command, Burke was relieved and reassigned to the Naval Gun Factory in Washington, D.C., and was there when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941. Despite his persistent request for sea duty, he remained at the Naval Gun Factory until the end of 42. Finally, in 43, he was assigned command of first Desron 43, then Desron 44, then 12. And this is very unusual for him to be traded, moved around like this. But finally, the position he held for most of the remainder of the war until he got promoted to admiral was Desron 23, famously referred to as the Little Beavers, Seth. <laughs> Yep, and under his command, uh, Desron 23 fought in 22 separate engagements, sank one cruiser, nine destroyers, one submarine, various smaller ships, and 30 aircraft. So he established a stellar record, shall we say, with Desron 23. Um, you know, we talked about Fred Moosebrugger um, mm -hmm. an episode or two ago when we were talking about Vela Golf. And that he was one of also these these maverick destroyer commanders who desperately sought to get his ships detached from the cruisers and battleships and things like that. And so the destroyers could do what the destroyers were built to do, which was attack. Uh, Burke was even more of a maverick in, in, in those terms. He was... Mooseberger was under Burke's purview, shall we say, and, and and Burke was the guy that that really really hammered these tactics in here, not just to Mooseberger but to other people too. He was the one that was really an advocate, more so than really anybody else, except for maybe Admiral mm -hmm. William Halsey, who was also an old destroyer man. Um, he you know he developed destroyer he, he developed tactics for American destroyers to fight alone. So to mm -hmm. be untethered from the big ships, as we said, so they could go out there and do what they needed to do, do what they were built to do. His standing orders were always, quote, destroyers to attack on enemy contact without orders in caps. This is not my uh, wording, but his uh, from the task force commanders, unquote. So in other words, when the destroyers make contact with the enemy, you just go in there and do your thing. And. Let us know what happens after you do your thing. This was reinforced at Blackett Strait, which is an event that we have not talked about, and we'll kind of mention it here and there. But uh, when Burke's ship was the first ship that made radar contact on the enemy, and Burke himself actually hesitated to fire. Uh, the resulting battle was a U.S. victory, but Burke was so unhappy with himself that he, at that moment from then on, he's like, God dang it, no matter what happens, whatever destroyer makes contact, you just go. You just go because he hesitated just long enough to not have a successful torpedo attack at Blackett Strait. And he beat himself up over that until this event right here. Now, yeah, no, in fairness to Burke, he was embarked in uh, in this destroyer. You know, there's a difference between saying the squadron commander is embarked in a ship and it's the, it's his ship. It was the captain's ship. Right. But he could have done more to, um, you know, kick the captain in the butt or whatever he needed to do to get him to engage. And I think that's what he was unhappy with himself over. Um, yeah, that, that's incredible. Now, I've, I mentioned a couple of times 
in these podcasts that I, I'm A, old enough and B, lucky enough to have met several of the key figures of World War II. Um, Arlie Burke is one of those key figures that I did meet. And in 19, I think it was 1995, when as a newly minted commander, 05 type, um, I was assigned as Arlie Burke's escort during something called a former CNOs conference that all CNOs hold where they bring in the, all the former CNOs to try to get a brief them on what's happening in today's Navy and get advice from them. That was the last former CNOs conference that Arlie Burke attended before he died. And I was so honored to be allowed to be his escort during that day. And I had so many questions for him as I drove him around the Pentagon in a golf cart and, and other things. And sadly, at this point, his mental capacity had been declining and he was asking me questions about things that he had done. Um, to, it became fairly clear that I was not going to get any of my questions answered by him because, frankly, he just couldn't remember. And it was just really, really heartbreaking. Um, but we all get old. And then that's what happens to all of these heroes. And so it's still my honor to have taken him around. I got him to sign my uh, my early Burke biography by my old professor, E.B. Potter. Um, but that's really the grand total of my engage with met with him on a personal level that day. He's a legend though. He was a legend. He was a legend during the war and he's a legend now. You know, there's there's guys that we've talked about, you know, Mush Morton, you know, we're gonna talk about mm -hmm. uh, you know, or, or by now the episode is aired, Gene Flucky, people who were legends during the war and are legends still to this day. Arlie Burke is certainly one of those people. Now, we yeah. mentioned briefly his nickname, 31 Not Burke, and there are multiple mm -hmm. stories about how that nickname came to be. Uh, a couple of them, frankly, are boring. However, there is one, and nobody, to my knowledge now, nobody has actually confirmed that this is how he got his nickname or this is how he got his name or whatever. But this version sounds to me, sounds to us like the more than likely way he got his nickname. So um, at some point after Blackett Strait, uh, Burke mistakenly led his squadron into a Japanese mind area. Uh, realizing his mistake pretty quickly, <laughs> he extricated himself very fast, to say the least. Word reached Admiral William Halsey that Burke had well, he blindly reported. Yeah, he, right. he would have had yes. to report the location of the minefield, and yeah. he probably said, "Hey, I stupidly, or he wouldn't have used the word stupidly, but he would have conveyed that expression. Ran into the mine into a minefield in this location, at which mm -hmm. point." Halsey said, what the heck were you doing in a minefield? And what was his response? About 31 knots. <laughs> <laughs> Don't answer the question you, they, they're asking, answer the question you want to answer. So That's he, right. he understood that back in 1943. Absolutely. Uh, that sharp wit right there, buddy. <laughs> yep, yep. So, mm -hmm. so let's get- it's even worse to be doing 31 knots in a minefield because you can't, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to be able to react in time if you do see a mine. <laughs> mm -mm. Mm -mm. So let, let's get to this battle of Cape St. George here. Sure. Um, 
1730 on November 24th, Burke had completed refueling and was plowing his way north at flank speed, 31 knots. Uh, Halsey had issued orders to station several PT boats, and we're going to talk about more about PTs here in just a minute, nine to be exact, near Buka Passage to intercept the Japanese should Burke miss them. And if if you look at the the map, Buka Passage is a pretty fairly you know it's a it's a wide wide hole. So if the Japanese you know, yeah, it's I between mean, it, Mapri and Buka here. So yeah, it's it, pretty it, it, a lot of water there. Yeah, it is, and and it's very feasible that the Japanese could indeed slide right by him without him ever seeing him. Um, so the PTs are stationed out in that general vicinity. <clears throat> excuse me, to catch anything that Burke may miss. And the PTs do indeed make contact. Stand by. Close to midnight, three of the PTs made radar contact. Now, not all PTs had radar, but some did. Uh, made radar contact on vessels inbound, believing the ships to be friendlies, even though they're coming from the opposite direction. Uh, the PTs sought cover inshore and proceeded to let the ships, now identified as two destroyers, pass. Now, the, the, these clearly are not Arleigh Burke's ships. Um, one of the ships shifted course and attempted to ram PT-318, which skewed out of the way. 318 just barely missed them. Now, imagine this in, in your mind, if you will, please. You are stationed out there to intercept Japanese ships that are known to be heading in this area. You pick up two strange targets on radar, and yet you believe them to be potentially friendly vessels. One of these vessels breaks off and attempts to ram one of your vessels in your column, and yet you still do not believe these to be Japanese ships. That is exactly what happens here. Still believing the ships to be friendly, the PTs let them pass again. The ships were indeed two Japanese destroyers, that being Onami and Makinami. What the hell's going on here, Bill? Yeah, you know, sometimes I think people hope, believe, Hope, slant, believe that this is not, oh, that's not the enemy. We're not going to engage that. Um, you know, that, that that's pretty sad because, it, you know, there, there was nobody else near. The PT skippers <laughs> knew the disposition of forces at this point. And, yeah, um, yeah. these are, I'm sure questions were asked, really, really hard questions were asked about why they did not engage. In any case, 0141 Burke's ships picked up the leading two destroyers on radar 11 miles east of their position. And the ships detected were again Onami and Makinami screening for the transport duties following behind. And at 0145, Burke ordered his ships to head directly for the enemy who was steaming at 25 knots. The Burke's plan was to have two columns of ships in which one would fire torpedoes while the other provided cover. Then one, the one providing cover would launch torpedoes while the first column covered it. Remember, destroyers generally in those days had these quintuple, quintuple water, five torpedo launchers, and they would be loaded with five. They, they'd basically shoot all five. Remember those three destroyers in the last battle we talked about shot 14, not 15. That means one probably didn't launch. It takes you a while to reload those tubes, right? So after you've got shot your torpedoes, then you change places in the column, and then the three destroyers, or the other destroyers that haven't shot yet, basically have uncovered their torpedoes so they can shoot next. 
And that's kind of the, the tactic that was being used here. Yep. It, it's, it's, it's identical to the tactics that were used at Vela Golf that were that Moosberger mm-hmm. uh, employed to great, great success. So as we're going to see here, it, you know, Fred's victory at Vela Golf was not a one and done kind of a thing here. Uh, at 0156, Burke's leading destroyers reached the firing point some 50 degrees off the enemy's port bow, 6,000 yards distant. Uh, on his order, the destroyers launched 15 torpedoes and turned 90 degrees away from their targets to avoid any enemy fish that may be inbound. Uh, the Japanese CO of this column, Captain Kagawa, was taken completely by surprise. He had no earthly clue that there were American ships in the area, much less that American ships had already launched torpedoes. This is tactics very reminiscent of what the Japanese kept doing to us off the shores of Guadalcanal. We're doing the exact same thing to him, to them here. Um, Burke's torpedoes had been in the water for four minutes before Japanese lookouts spotted Burke's ships in the distance. By then, Kagawa had roughly 30 seconds to change course. That's not happening, is it, Bill? No, it takes you can you could get the rudder over, um, but it takes, you know, let's say 20 seconds or so to substantially change the the bearing, the ship's head course, right? So mm-hmm. it's a lot of inertia you have to overcome in order to change a you know, let's say two thousand ton ships heading. So Burke, his ships, you know, detect three large explosions. You see him before you hear him, of course. Onami evaporates as she is hit by several torpedoes, and she goes down with all hands. This almost never happens. Almost never happens. In order for that to happen, there has to be a a huge explosion topside that's going to injure folks to the point where they can't swim. And the ship has to sink so fast that those below decks can't get off the ship before it goes down. That's why this is such a rare event. Makanami was hit once and disabled. We said it before. A torpedo against a destroyer is a pretty disabling, you know, event. And, and it happens here as well. Makanami later be finished off by Austin's incoming divisions. I think just a few minutes later. Uh, Seth. Yeah, it does. It, it, it is. Uh, back in Burke's formation, Charles Osborne, this is not a person, well, it was, but this is a destroyer, Charles Osborne, mm-hmm. uh, made radar contact with the remaining Japanese destroyers shortly before the torpedoes that they had just launched hit some 13,000 yards astern of the two now sunken Japanese ships. Now, both of these, Makanami and, uh, what was it, Onami, are both now going down while well, Onami's gone, but Makanami's going down. Um, the Japanese, having seen their two escort destroyers be destroyed, literally, uh, decided to get out of there. They decided to turn around and just go. They're like, nope, not today. And they turn around and fly out of there. Dialing up 33 knots, Burt decides to give chase, uh, eventually closing the range to 8,000 yards. He's 31 knot, Burke. How's he doing 33 knots if he's 31 knot, Burke? <laughs> Must have gotten out to oars, man. I don't know. <laughs> it's going downhill. Give me four, seven. Yeah. yeah. Really? By 0215, on a hunch, and this is Burke just being situationally aware here, on a hunch, mm-hmm. he decides to zig his formation. He does so for what, Bill, like a minute and a half or something like that, uh, and then yeah. zag back to his original course. Just thinking, eh, they may have launched torpedoes. 
as he zags back onto his original course, he sees explosions in his wake. So yeah, they hit shallow shoals, basically. Yeah. Missed mm-hmm. his ships, but hit shoals. And so he, this hunch really paid off. Uh, yeah, you know, you have to ask yourself, what would I do if I were him? Uh, fire and, and skedaddle as I'm skedaddling. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, the, yeah, he was right. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, that's just absolute situational awareness and just knowing your enemy's tactics, too. And that's huge, is that Burke was keenly aware of what the Japanese typically did, especially if they turned and ran, which they which they had done here. Um, still chasing the Japanese, Burke opened fire at 0-2-22 with just his forward main battery because he was not giving them chase. He didn't want to turn and expose broadside and waste that time and give up that distance. He opens fire with his main battery just from his two forward turrets on these Fletcher-class destroyers. Um at that point, a gunfight breaks out in which the Japanese never hit the Americans, but the Americans are hitting the Japanese. This is radar-controlled gunfire at its finest. The, the destroyers, the American destroyers, are pouring fire into the Japanese. Um, the Yaguri, which is one of the Japanese that had become the main target of Burke's column, eventually does succumb to American gunfire and does sink. Um, giving chase to the two remaining destroyers. Burke's not giving up. He's kind of like a dog chasing after a squirrel. He's got this thing in his sights, and he wants it. He uh, he quickly realizes at this point that the Japanese are just going to outrun him, and Japanese destroyers were faster than American destroyers by several knots. And these guys, the Japanese, clearly had opened up the throttles wide, and they are running, and the Americans just mm-hmm. aren't going to catch them. And Burke realizes this, so he realizes that the chase has now become fruitless, and he decides to break contact and turn around and go back to doing what he's supposed to do. Bill, it's a short engagement. It's just like the battle, naval battle of Vela La Vela that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Battle of Camp St. George is a boom, boom kind of a thing, but it's it literally is a textbook perfect engagement is it not yeah it is he, he the you know burke ends up destroying three enemy destroyers damaging another so it, there's on the japanese side some 647 killed in action without suffering a single hit or a single casualty on the american side this is as one-sided a surface action as any destroyer engagement in the war and as a result he's awarded an 80 cross for the action that's been described as a classic, almost perfect. And so that's pretty remarkable as a captain. Now, Cape St. George and American Victory would be the final naval battle in the Solomons. All right. So we have spent quite uh, all of season two uh, and a great deal of season one in the Solomons. And, um, and this is the final naval battle. Now, there's going to be a lot of land action on Bougainville yet to come. But uh, this is an incredible way to kind of tie a bow around the Solomon's naval activity. And 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 again, to go back to what we talked about earlier with, with Vela La Vela, think about this as we put a bow on these, these naval battles in the Solomon's. And by naval battles, I'm talking about surface battles. Think about what happens in Guadalcanal. Savo, you got all these cruisers slugging it out. Then you got the battle wagons getting in there and slugging and all these, you know, very large vessels. Both navies at this point in this area of the world have been whittled down to destroyers. That's not putting a slide on destroyers at all because they are 
were, and I'm assuming still are, probably one of the most valuable ships in the fleet. But mm-hmm. that will show you the attrition rate for both navies. Now, granted, the United States Navy could make up for losses slowly, but we're making up for losses. Japanese Navy can't. And and this this war of attrition that is that started, you know, at Savo Island is concluded here. And just look at the forces. Just look at the forces that are fighting these events, and it'll tell you all you need to know about how this war was being fought at this stage in the Pacific War. Now, Bill, as we pull away from these destroyer gunfights, we're going to talk about an event that people have asked about. You've mentioned several times, and and it's it's appropriate to mention because of one specific participant in this event that obviously later plays an enormous part in American history. It is the story of PT-109. Let's let let's get after this, Bill. I know this is an area in which you've taken specific interest. Let's let, let's talk about PT one hundred nine. And again, we can't go into the entire history of the PT boat in this episode because we're already over an hour and a in, into it. And so, but I thought maybe because so many people have asked if we're going to do this, since it's a Solomon's event, and um, you know, I could talk about the locations uh, separately. You know, we thought we'd take a little bit of time just to go through it. And kind of tie again, tie a bow around the Solomons. You know, one of the I'm old. I keep saying this. I'm old enough that one of my earliest memories. In fact, man, one of my there's only two or three memories that I can think of that predate this memory. It was the memory of John F. Kennedy's assassination, in 1963, November the 22nd, because I was five years old. I was in first grade, and you know, we were actually released from school. It was kind of like a 9-11 event for the country. And I remember sitting in, on the floor in front of our old-fashioned black and white TV uh, with a much smaller screen than you could imagine. And my mother crying. And my mother, by the way, was just here having visited me for um, a couple of weeks. And so, But my mother was crying as we watched the funeral procession of John F. Kennedy. So that kind of embeds in your brain when you have memories like that. You know, where were you when... You heard John F. Kennedy was killed, and you know I'm, I was in the Pentagon on 9/11, so it wasn't hard for me to remember where I was then. There was a later movie called PT 109. Um, Cliff Robertson, I think, played John F. Kennedy, and that was kind of my first uh, exposure to Kennedy's uh, naval career. I mean, he's made some very famous quotes about serving as a naval officer. Um, that, that those of us who were naval officers like to recite all the time, but you know it's it's a good good story, and I think people both overestimate and underestimate what happened when Kennedy was the skipper as a lieutenant of PT one hundred nine, and so that's why it's worth talking about. So on the night of August first and second, nineteen forty three, you remember that Kennedy had previously been stationed. On Tulagi with his PT boats. In fact, there's a plaque on Tulagi that commemorates his being stationed there. At this point of the war, he's stationed at uh, Rendova, not at, um, at, at Tulagi anymore. The PT boat squadron had been moved up to Rendova. And it was a moonless, pitch black night when he stood a station in Blackett Strait just south of Kolomogara, awaiting Japanese inbound destroyers. 
Now, again, I'm going to show a, a, a quick map here um, to kind of expose how this looked. Now, here's Kuala Mangara. We talked about the fact that there are a lot of Japanese on this island and a bunch of islands around here as well. So the PT boats are standing off here at idle. We would also say in irons. That means they're not moving. They're awaiting an inbound column of destroyers. And I'll hand it off to you at that point, Seth. Yeah, PT-109 was not the only PT boat out there. She was not alone. Uh, there were an additional 14 PTs in the area hoping to stop another run of the Tokyo Express. Uh, they had waited fruitlessly for hours and hours and hours for something to come along when finally, shortly after midnight on August 2nd, uh, radar aboard PT-159, PT-109 did not have radar, radar aboard 159 uh, picked up the j expected Japanese ships. Um, now, this is we, – we, we recently aired an episode about uh, the American torpedo problems in World War II, and we mainly talked about submarines, and some we kind of touched on aerial torpedoes. Well, remember, PT boats you know, also had torpedoes, uh, motor torpedo boats is what they were called. Um, these PTs that are in this line with Kennedy being one of these PTs fire 30 torpedoes at the Japanese ships inbound, not a single one hits not to say that their aim was bad although some of their aim was bad frankly um mm. the torpedoes were erratic they sunk they did hit and failed to detonate they ran too deep or you know i mean they they were garbage so the pt boat torpedoes were frankly just as bad if not worse which is hard to believe than the submarine torpedoes they were just as much of a pile of trash as any other american torpedo at this point in the war was um, the boats had, that had used up their fish were ordered home, while those who hadn't fired were to remain on station and attack again. PT-109 was one of those that was left back on station. She had not fired her torpedoes yet, or she, had, she hadn't fired all of them at the inbound Japanese destroyers. Later in the night, Kennedy rendezvoused his boat with PT-162 of his own patrol section and PT-169, which had been separated from another section, and the three boats spread out to make a picket line again across Blackett Strait. At 0230, again, keep in mind, PT-109 does not have radar, uh, Kennedy noticed a shape looming out of the darkness 300 yards off PT-109 starboard bow. Three, 300 yards is not very far when when you're in a PT boat at idle just sitting there, number one, and this thing that's coming at you is making, you know, between 25 and 30 knots. That 300-yard distance is going to close like that, and that is exactly what happens here. When it became apparent that it was one of the inbound Japanese destroyers, Kennedy attempted to turn to starboard and bring his torpedoes to bear. Now, he, the engines are running. You know, there's been stories where he was just sitting there and the engines were off. That is not true. The, he was sitting not at true. idle in case he did have to move, which he does here at this point have to move. But he sees him, frankly, he just sees him too damn late. He, he sees him too late. The Japanese are moving too fast, and he just can't get out of the way. He does fire it up, or I say fire it up, is already running. He does proceed to try and move and swing his boat to starboard, he doesn't make the turn in time. Even though the PTs were fast and maneuverable, that distance closed just too damn fast. Yeah, he he gunned it, right? But I talked about inertia earlier and how, you know, these these are these are 
big boats. I mean, they're not ship size, but they're big boats. And even if you gun it, twin engines, you have, it takes 20, 30 seconds to get up significant speed. And so a destroyer later identified as the Amagiri, the escort ship of the Empress, struck 109 just forward of the forward starboard torpedo tube, which essentially just rips away the starboard aft side of the boat. And less than a minute had passed since the, the ship was first sighted. And the impact tosses Kennedy around the cockpit. And his radium and Johnny McGuire is actually thrown out of it. Most of the crewmen were knocked or fell out of the water. The one crewman below decks, engineer Patrick McMahon, was badly burned by exploding fuel. From the wreckage of the boat, because it sinks immediately, Kennedy orders the men with him, Edgar Maurer, Johnny McGuire, to identify the location of the shipmates, you know, screaming. It's, it's so dark. Remember, they couldn't see the destroyer coming at them. So how can they see each other in the water? The two ensigns, Leonard Tom, George Ross, and another sailor named Gerald Zinzer and Raymond Albert were able to swim back around on their own um, and try to collect everybody, account for everybody. Kennedy swam out to McMahon and a guy by the name of Charles Harris and, you know, try to assemble everybody at the still floating bow of PT-109 and basically said, everybody hang on to the bow. Let's figure out who's missing. And it turns out two of them were never found. Uh, so towing the incapacity man by life vest, Kennedy returns to the boat, alternatively cajoling and berating the hurt and exhausted Harris, who followed behind to get them back to the bow of the boat. Meanwhile, Tom pulls in William Johnston, who was debilitated by the gasoline he accidentally swallowed when he went to the water and the heavy fumes that lay on the water. Finally, Raymond Starkey swam from where he'd been flung by the shock. So now again, the boat is struck here. They all kind of assemble at the boat's bow. The stern sinks, it's got the engines in it. And, and they're floating around the hulk. Um, and, and as the boat begins to drift, go ahead and pick it up there, Seth. So two men uh, were never found, as Bill had said before. They were Harold Marney and Andrew Jackson Kirksey. It is assumed that they were more than likely killed when the destroyer, you know, cut PT-109 essentially in half. Uh, and more than likely, those guys never even knew what hit them. Um, all the men that are in the water now are exhausted. And this, the sinking occurs, wham. I mean, they're hit and this thing goes down and, and they're in the water, but it takes them a while to congregate. It, it doesn't happen immediately. As Bill said, it's a pitch black night, moonless night. There were hardly any stars out. I mean, it was just darker than all get out. So it's taking these guys a while to, you know, get together. Um, after they do, excuse me, after they do get together, Kennedy decides, you know, we got to get out of here. They start moving away from the area, don't they, Bill? Yeah, they do. And again, it's actually the next day um, when they decide, you know what, this this boat, the bow that we're hanging on to, just kind of hovering, it's drifting a little bit, but it's not going to take us where we need to go. They see a small island over here. He didn't know the name of it. Some people today call this Kennedy Island now, 
but he sees this small island right here. And he says, um, you know what? We're going to try to make it to this island. So that's a three-mile swim. They didn't know that at the time, right? When you, you're in the water, your head is at basically right above the surface. Now, there were, they were at battle stations, general quarters. So they're wearing their life jackets when they went into the water. But their head's still just a foot above the water. You see an island. There's no way for you to tell how far away it is. Um, and that's the problem. Remember San Cristobal Island when the Juno went down? Uh, I think some three sailors, two officers maybe, and a sailor swam 10 miles. It was a long way to San yeah. Cristobal Island yeah. earlier in 1942 when the Juno went down. And I guarantee you, if they had known the Arlen Island was as far away as it really was, they probably wouldn't have attempted it. But now you've got these guys with with Kennedy, you know, leading them saying, hey, look, our best chance is to make it to that island and see what we could find there and pray to God that is not controlled by the Japanese. So that's what they do. And the, the, the island is actually called Plum Pudding Island, very difficult to find on the map. So they help each other swim. Came Kennedy famously pulls the Burn McMahon who can't swim He's got a strap from the life jacket, jacket, and he holds that in his teeth and does, you know, breast stroke or something like that, or side stroke, and swimming for what seems like an eternity. They finally reach this plum pudding island that's right here. And I keep hitting the click and the clicker and going ahead. But that's what they basically, where they basically get, they make it to three miles to plum pudding island. Uh, on the th- on the third of August, and that, that that is an incredible feat when you think about it. Just let's pause mm-hmm. on this for just one second. First of all, Kennedy was a strong swimmer, like very strong swimmer. He was on the Harvard swim team. He was, you know, he was very physically fit at this point in his life. He's 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 physically capable of doing this. But just think about what Bill just said. He's swimming three miles. His ship just got sunk, so he's hurt. Uh, he's swimming three miles by towing a guy in his friggin' teeth. You know, that mm-hmm. is that is serious. That that is whether you agree with his man's politics or the way he conducted his presidency or not, there is no questioning his A heroism here and his B devotion to his men here. I mean, that is serious stuff. Serious stuff. By the way, I'm wearing my Harvard shirt here he was on. I obtained a course at Harvard or so that gave me this shirt. Since Cavity was a heart. Uh, an alum, I, I'm wearing it. And by the way, it's you know, it's it's not just that. When he gets to Plum Pudding Island, he discovers there's nothing there, no water, no food, no coconuts, nothing. So he keeps swimming out into this channel and looking, hoping the a PT boat will come by. And you know, he and actually Ensign George Ross is his swim buddy, as you might call it. And the two of them swim out, and they find you know what, this is not going to happen. We need to find another place. And so when they give up on that, what they end up doing is swimming down to this island. In fact, they gather everybody together, the entire crew, and they swim down to this island on the 4th of August called Olasana Island. Again, Kennedy's towing, you know, the sailor with the, the life jacket strap in his teeth. And it's about only, only about a mile and a half. Now I swam a mile and a half by myself in the past. And that's 
hard enough. I, you know, doing it in a light jacket, there's pros and cons. It's easier to float, but you create it creates more drag, and it's more physically exhausting when you're in the life jacket than when you're not. So this mile and a half has got to be a lot of effort. But he gets the entire crew onto Olasana Island, again, hoping that there's something there that um, that, that they, they can use to survive. And in fact, he does find coconuts on Olasana Island. But he does, again, say, you know what, there's not, there's no natives, there's no way to communicate. So the next day, on the 5th of August, just he and Ross, the two of them, because he's thinking, we may have to swim to a bunch of these islands. Why don't we leave the majority of the crew here, and then we'll go out and recon these islands. They swim to an island called Nauru Island here, on the, which is only a, mi- only a mile from Olasana Island. So he and Ross kind of camp out here for a while on Olasana Island. Good news is he finds coconuts. He finds some abandoned Japanese supplies um so they can and there's just basically they're drinking coconut water to hydrate and eating the coconut you know meat to to get some nourishment like the sailors are doing on Olasan island and he's also two natives show up on Nara island as well which now he's starting to think okay maybe these guys know where to deliver a message so he scratches out a message with his knife on this coconut husk. He's got nothing to write with. And, and in fact, I think Seth, you'll probably show a, you know, a photo of that yeah. coconut husk. It now exists in the Kennedy Presidential Library. And he scratches out the words, Naru ISL Island, commander, native knows posit, he can pilot. 11 alive, need small boat, Kennedy. And so that's what he scratches out. He gives it to these natives and he says, go take it to friendlies, to, to Americans, New Zealanders, coast watchers, anybody but the Japanese. And so they take off uh, for a little bit. And I think it's August 7th when the next phase of this event occurs, Seth. Yeah, the the natives, thank God, are uh, helpful and they're friendly, obviously. And uh, a note on that coconut husk, I don't know who who did it, but somebody encased this thing in like resin or something, and it lived on Kennedy's desk in the Oval Office. That very, and that's the one that's in his library today. So that that yeah. very coconut husk, which is pretty damn cool in my opinion. But back to the point on on August the seventh, eight. Islanders now uh, appeared at Nauru, which is that little island down there that Bill was talking about, uh, and told Kennedy and his companion uh, when they woke up uh, that they had brought food and brought instructions from the local Allied Coast Watcher, who was a gentleman named Lieutenant A. Reginald Evans, that Kennedy should come over to Evans's post, which is on Gomu Island, stopping long enough at, oh, I'm sorry, stopping long, it's it's on Nauru, but stopping long enough on Osana to feed the crew, the islanders hid Kennedy under a pile of palm fronds and paddled to him to Gomu Island and Blackett Strait, which is over there on Bill's 
cursor there. Um, early in the evening of the early in the evening of the seventh, a little more than six days after PT 109 sinking, Kennedy stepped onto Gomu. There was still a rescue to be planned with Evans. No small thing in enemy held waters, but the ordeal for all intents and purposes for PT 109's crew was over. Uh, Evans had already received word from the from the natives. He'd already had the coconut husk that there were eleven American sailors alive on Osana on uh, Nauru Island, rather. And he had notified Rendova of this. So the allies or the Americans at Rendova knew that Kennedy was indeed alive and that they needed to go get them. Um, the base commander was proposing to send the rescue mission directly, directly to Osana. Understandably somewhat wary of the ability of such a mission to be directed from afar, Kennedy insisted on being picked up first so that he could guide the rescue boats PTs 157 and 171 among the reefs and shallows of the island chain. So he knows the area, God knows, because he's swum it enough that he knows where to go and where not to go. So this is exactly what happens, isn't it, Bill? Yeah, you know, he, he develops, or they, they say in Rodova, we're going to give you, you know, basically the signal to come ashore to pick you up. Mr. Kennedy is, Lieutenant Kennedy is four shots, fire four shots. Problem is he only had three <laughs> shots remaining in his revolver. And so um, he shot his three and borrowed a rifle from Evans to, sh to fire the fourth. So they came in, picked him up. He did guide them ov over to Olasana Island early in the morning of August 8th, at which point the exhausted men of PT-109 were all still asleep, by the way, when they get hit, when they get there. Kennedy, to his relief and exhilaration, are still alive. And so they picked him up and, um, and you know, started... Nervous, they were still very nervous over the proximity of the Japanese, but the rescue did go forward without incident. And the men of P2 109 reached Rendova at 5 30 in the morning on August 8th, which is which is great. And again, the reason we wanted to cover this, I said the event was both easier and harder than it's commonly given credit for. I say easier, the, the, the movie, um, as one might expect from a movie does sensationalize some of the uh, Kennedy heroism um, and exploits and obviously dra dramatizes with pithy sayings and, and speeches uh, that, that probably never happened. But it's harder because the common knowledge of PT-109 is the boat was sunk, they swam to an island and were rescued. No, it was way more complex than that. He swam to several islands over the course of five days and had to basically engineer his rescue. So it wasn't like somebody encountered him and, and they were saved. It was way harder than that. I, I believe he received the Navy Cross for this. Is that correct, he did. Seth? He did, yes, 100% yeah. correct. Yeah, he he received the Navy Cross, much deserved too, I mean, by the way. I agree. You know, some, I agree. Some people have said that he should have been court-martialed because he lost his vote, and that's just people who say that don't know the story, don't know the actual history. Um, no, <laughs> he definitely earned the Navy Cross for this. And I've never been at sea on a dark ship on a moonless night, um, you know, in constrained waters, um, trying to avoid darkened ship. So, you know, people who say those things don't know anything about the Navy. So, yeah, I'm sorry, but that's the case. It is what it is. Now, he, uh, mm -hmm. again, his actions here are 
absolutely 100% heroic. He deserved the Navy Cross for these actions. And I mean, his dedication to his crew is, you know, on point here. And, and what he does to, A, save the life of that man by towing him, not once, but twice, with his teeth, uh, you know, across across a strait and then across to another island. I mean, that's just absolute dedication, absolute heroism. And his his the story of PT109 is certainly something that that we we wanted to bring out, but it's it's kind of too short to develop into one episode. So we thought we would include it here yeah. as we wrap up these naval it, battles on Ramos Islands. It needs to be said that every president until Bill Clinton had served in uniform during World War II, which is a good thing. Most of them did not see combat. The ones, of course, George H.W. Bush, and we talked to, we'll, we'll continue to talk about him as we get to Chichijima and things like that. And of course, John F. Kennedy. The rest of them were in uniform, but were doing either publicity kind of things, or, you know, I think that uh, President Nixon was a JAG officer um, in the Navy, of course. Ford was in the Navy, Reagan was in the Army. Um, you know, Clinton, uh, sorry, Jimmy Carter was too young to have served in World War II, but he's an Annapolis graduate in the Navy, served an entire, you know, uh, tour in the Navy. So military service is a good thing. I'm, I'm happy for that. I'm saddened that we don't see, um, you know, that many political um, you know, people running for political office that are served military people. But Kennedy saw real combat. And that needs to be memorialized, uh, you know, by this podcast and others. Uh, he wasn't a uniform for, you know, political, for, for publicity purposes only kind of guy. Uh, he was a real combat naval officer, and that's great. Yeah. And if you don't think for one minute he could have gotten out of serving in combat, you don't know the Kennedy family. <laughs> he most certainly could have. If he didn't want to, he didn't have to. Yep. His dad had that kind of political influence, and, and that's Absolutely. the way it was. Absolutely. Well, Bill, we're, uh, we've, we've talked a lot about a lot of different – we ping-ponged around in this episode, which we generally don't do. But there was a lot of kind of loose ends that we wanted to tie up as we, as we move on – further into this Southwest Pacific action area, Bougainville. And, and we're going to talk about the carrier raids on truck and, and, and different things like that as we go forward with the rest of the story in the 1943. But we felt like, you know, none of these episodes were, are none of these, uh, well, yeah, episodes. None of these engagements were long enough for an entire episode. So we thought we'd combine them here, much like we did with Colin Magara and Bella Golf. So hope you guys enjoyed this kind of roundup, if you will. Bill, is there anything else you want to add to this one? No, I think we um, went long enough, Seth. Yeah, I think we're good. I think we're good. So with that, we want to thank you very much for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Uh, also, if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other episodes, please tune in, like, and subscribe to our YouTube channel called the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. If you have a question, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, my name is Seth Perrin. I want to say thank you very much, Bill. I'm Bill Toady. See you again next week.